This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm uh, Cameron Carter. I'm the director of the Behavioral Health Center for Excellence. Um, which is sponsoring this talk. This is actually the first public talk from this new centre. The centre was established in the fall of last year. Um, it's uh, funded uh, through the state uh, by the um, uh, Mental Health Services Act to Oversight and Accountability Commission. Uh, the uh, purpose of the centre is to do something new here at UC Davis, which is to provide an overarching infrastructure that brings together all of the researchers working in the area of mental health, from basic science to clinical research to mental health services research uh, to policy and uh, outcomes evaluation. The centre has three cores, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about those in a minute. Um, we have, as the first uh, step that the centre has taken, funded uh, a, a significant number of pilot grants. These are um, groups of researchers that have gotten together to come up with brand new mental health related research projects, again spanning the whole range from basic science discovery through to understanding disease processes through imaging and other clinical neuroscience methods through to the introduction of new interventions that are designed to improve outcomes and services for patients. And our big goal is really twofold. The first is to let research inform policy. And the second is to create the kind of research that can help to further policy and move it forward. Um, I mentioned that the centre has uh, some cores in addition to these pilot grants that we funded. Uh, there are three of them. One is a very lean one. It's the administrative core. Uh, core. That's uh, myself as a director, Christy Trushon. Christy, are you here? She's our, she's our administrative director and our lead dean, Fred Myers, who's going to introduce uh, Senator Steinberg in a minute. Uh, the second core is an outcomes core to bring the tools that we need in order to really evaluate and, uh, uh, and understand the uh, outcomes uh, that come from research as it is applied into practice. And as part of that outcomes core, we recently recruited a health economist from the University of Toronto who's going to come and bring some new expertise to UC Davis in the evaluation of the economic impact of uh, various interventions, mental health services interventions. And then the third core is the policy core. And we are really honoured to have Senator Steinberg lead the policy core. He can tell us a little bit about um, what he plans to accomplish with that policy core. Um, it's going to, to some degree, I think, reflect the goals of his Steinberg Institute, but it's also going to really uh, bring something very new in terms of uh, education and mentorship for UC Davis faculty and trainees who are interested in uh, getting involved in policy. And, uh, and as part of this uh, policy core, Senator Steinberg will uh, have launch our inaugural uh, lecture today. So I know you didn't come here to listen to me. Um, uh, Dean Fred Myers is going to uh, introduce the senator, and then we'll begin our first inaugural Behavioral Center of Excellence talk. Thanks, Dr. Carter. Uh, welcome, everybody. We're so glad to see all of you here. I will make brief comments. Uh, we have been talking for a long time about the importance of policy 
public policy and advocacy and changing the health of our communities and the health care in our communities. And, you know, there's a lot of good examples of that. Uh, public health has changed the face of smoking cessation, of wearing your seatbelt, of helmet laws, and a lot of other things, all the way to uh, some of the more controversial areas in, in public health all across the world now, as you know. It's, it, it's been great for me, however, to be able to engage in a true leader in public policy and someone who takes the word public service very seriously, uh, as, uh, as Senator Steinberg does. Uh, we started talking about a year and a half, two years ago, about what could be done in California to amplify uh, the efforts that he's been carrying on for over a decade now to improve uh, the care uh, of uh, uh, the care for mental health in the state, both the care delivery as well as uh, public health and uh, around mental health. So it's been quite inspirational for me personally to be able to work with Daryl and to understand that because you do understand as you trace back his career from his early days in Sacramento and the city council all the way up through the assembly and the Senate to uh, being the president of the Senate, how important the word service really uh, uh, is to him, that he comes to work every single day with a passion to serve our communities. And, and for that, that's great. And we've rewarded him with a faculty appointment without salary here at the <laughs> So the reward is, uh, is in many ways service uh, to really join with us in continuing the transformation of public health and the care of people who really uh, need care, particularly in mental health. But I dare say that you're going to see a lot of uh, his uh, efforts impact us uh, as we think about new models of care in our community. So what an honor it's been for me to work with the senator over the last couple of years and a, a pleasure to see some role model service to our communities. Uh, senator Steinberg, a pleasure to have you today. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Myers. I'm going to move all this stuff. I do not do PowerPoints, let me just say. I should, I suppose. In fact, is this microphone? Hello? There we go. It's on. Very good. Good, good afternoon, uh, everyone. And um, thank you, Dr. Myers and Dr. Carter, for um, your warm welcome. Wonderful to see all of you here tonight. I hope that uh, this first lecture we can engage in some questions and answers and some dialogue because uh, I'm, I don't like the idea of speaking to you. I'd rather speak with you and learn together about the great opportunity that we have here in California and the United States to change the face of mental health. I'm Daryl Steinberg. I refer to myself sometimes now as the formerly honorable Daryl Steinberg as I left public office uh, now four and a half months ago after a 20-year run. There was a two-year gap uh, in between my assembly and senate tenures. And I must say that despite the challenges and the difficulties of uh, of the positions that I, that I held and the times in which I held them, that I feel like a very lucky person because I got the opportunity over 20 years to make a difference and to focus on issues that 
I think really matter. I was given some sage advice when I first entered the state legislature back in 1998 by a former assembly member representing Sacramento, Phil Eisenberg. He said, you know, this is a big state. And I had no vision or dream that I was ever going to lead one of the houses of the legislature. He said, you know, in the term-limited environment, it's really important that you think about one or two, maybe three things at the most that you really want to accomplish. And they ought to be one or two, three, or three things that are not at the top of the political pop charts, that not everyone else is working on, but something where you can breathe some life into an issue and see it through to the end of a six-year case of the assembly or 14 years if you're lucky enough to serve in both houses a run in the legislature and I decided for a variety of reasons really they weren't personal at the time although as you may have read my family story the personal did ultimately collide with the with the professional but I took this on because I saw in the homeless problem in the city of Sacramento, the continuation of an unfilled promise, unfulfilled promise. A promise back in the late 1960s when Governor Reagan was governor before he became president and the Democratic legislature made the well-intended public policy decision. And I say well-intended because I think it was the right direction to shut the state mental hospitals and to substitute the funding for those hospitals with a system of community-based care and treatment so that people living with mental illness could live with various degrees of independence in the community without the strictures of locked facilities. As it's been told to me more than once, one flew over the cuckoo's nest may have been fictional in fact, but it was really true in terms of the conditions of many of those places. But as most Californians know, even if you know nothing else about modern state history, it's amazing, most Californians know that that promise was not fulfilled. That the state promised at the time, and I've gone back to look at the actually actual typewritten archives from the Department of Finance in 1967. The state promised that it would fund 90% of the cost of community care. And for a variety of reasons, whether it's Proposition 13, whether it's just the vagaries of the economy and the ups and downs of budgets, and maybe most important, whether it's the fact, and this is what I want to discuss here for a few moments, the fact that mental health always has this thing, some call it stigma, attached to it such that it never rises to the top of the public policy agenda. And so you've seen my bio and when I got to the assembly, I was able to pass a series of bills and then ultimately led the effort to pass Proposition 63. 
And as a final cap on my work in the legislature in this area, in 2014, thank God the state is once again in recovery, financial recovery, I was able to work with your leaders in this university, in addition to the University of California at Los Angeles, to get $15 million of funding spread over three years to fund two behavioral health centers, one here at UC Davis and one at UCLA. And here is our simple goal, not so simple. We want to combine cutting-edge research, cutting-edge clinical practice, and strident advocacy to make funding, and not just funding, but making mental health more accessible for all people in need here in California. I believe that it's only the combination of research, of clinical practice, and of advocacy that is going to make a real difference. For this is an issue which we must acknowledge carries with it the following three indisputable facts. Fact number one, the issues of mental illness in our society are pervasive. Whether we talk about them or not, they are pervasive. They know none of the usual artificial boundaries that divide people. They know no particular political party or race or ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation or class or community or neighborhood. It's fair to say, I think, that everybody knows somebody. My daughter Jordana went public with her story back in late August of 2014. Her decision as a young 20-year-old 20, 20 adult, she's doing well. And there is not a week that goes by in my life whether I'm walking down the K Street Mall or on my phone or get an email or a text, my wife the same, where three to five times a week somebody does not stop and tell me their story that they hadn't shared with anyone. This is pervasive and yet we don't talk about it. Fact number two, the issues of untreated mental illness affect most of the major public policy challenges that my former colleagues and representative governments throughout the country are forced to confront. Whether it's the plight of veterans, whether it's criminal justice, whether it's housing and homelessness, whether it's kids who fall behind in school because of emotional problems, whether it's the sometimes dysfunctional healthcare system itself that, that does not align needs and payment systems in a way that allow people to get the help that they need.
And when I think about that gap and why that gap exists between the pervasiveness, oh, excuse me, I didn't get to fact three. Forgot. This is what happens when I leave my notes here and I wander over here. We have to go back a little closer here. Fact three. Despite facts one and two, with rare exception, with rare exception, no political leader chooses to make this issue and these sets of issues a priority. There are bills introduced, and you'll see this year there will be more bills introduced, so maybe it's changing. But at least in my 20 years, with rare exception, there are few who make this a priority. And I ask myself, why? Why is there that gap between the pervasiveness of the issues the fact that in every legislative district, there are tens of thousands of people who are dealing with this, living with it, either in their own families, or co-workers, friends, people themselves. And the fact that representative government, by and large, and, it's, and the, the people who are elected to represent half a million to a million people, why do they back off? And the answer, of course, is that word which maybe we do throw around too loosely and ought to focus on just a little bit, and that is, the, that is the word stigma. What is stigma? At one level, it can be outright discrimination. And I like to think that we've come a ways where we no longer would say or think that somebody who's living with depression or a mood disorder could not work, or wouldn't be hired, or, or, or would have to leave a family and go to an institution just because they lived are living with such a condition. But it wasn't that long ago in our history where stigma was defined as outright discrimination. Certainly stigma is fear. It is fear of it is fear of being the victim of discrimination if you're living with a mental illness or you're the parent of a child. I have my own stigma and struggled with my own daughter's decision to go public because I didn't want her to be hurt. I overcame it. Otherwise, I would have been a hypocrite. But I felt it. But there's a third definition of stigma, which I think is most relevant here to our combination and our connection between research, clinical practice, and advocacy. And that is maybe the most insidious stigma of all, is that when it comes to the issues of mental illness, the public by and large believes that the problem is unsolvable. The public, by and large, believes that the problem is unsolvable. Now, I don't, I learned long ago as a politician not to blame the media, because that's too easy. And it's actually not fair. They do professional job, they're human beings, they do the best they can. But it is really true of that old notion that what bleeds leads, and that what is most sensational is what gets the headlines or the TV coverage. 
and that there is a whole lot more coverage of the terrible tragedies of people who fall through the cracks and die or who shoot, you know, who, who, who commit acts of mass violence. Look what happened just a couple of weeks ago with the, with the pilot. And yet it's a dangerous, dangerous connection between mental illness and violence because what it says and the message that it puts out is that if you're living with mental illness, you have a propensity for violence. Well, it's just not true. But more than that, we aren't sharing and hearing enough about the fact that recovery itself is possible. Stories matter. People need to come out of the closet. Certainly we have some evidence about the power of coming out of the closet when it comes to another social issue in our society. If people don't think history was made two weeks ago, within the last two weeks in Indiana, not just that, not the passage of law, but the reaction to the passage of that law. Walmart, NASCAR, are you kidding me? Conservative America and the business community has said enough. The tipping point has occurred. We are done with this. You treat people equally. You treat people equally, so stories matter. But stories themselves, in my view, are not enough. Because stories may impact policymakers emotionally, but when it comes to competing agendas and competing priorities, what ultimately wins the day is not only organization and power, which is another part of our obligation here to exercise that power responsibly, but it's also information. And it's also overcoming that stereotype that is the stigma around mental illness that the problem itself is unsolvable. The antidote, in my view, is not only the telling of the stories of recovery, but it is also credible, comprehensive data. Credible, comprehensive data that shows that recovery happens and that the right kind of intervention works. I know this. My first bill in 2000 and 19, God, I'm getting old here. First bill I introduced in 1998 was AB 34, the Integrated Services for the Homeless Mentally Ill. We put $10 million to three pilot projects in Sacramento, Los Angeles, and Stanislaus County to prove that outreach case management and using the money for whatever it takes for people who have been on the streets for a long time could get them off the streets and make a difference. And in six months, we saw dramatic reductions through data of hospitalization, of jail time, of days of homelessness. It was so successful and the data was so inspiring that we came back the next year and got $55 million for AB 2034, 
5,000 people getting the same care and treatment and the same statistical and data results every single year. And w even well into the 2009 recession, we were able to keep that program intact because the data defied getting rid of it. Now eventually, the recession was so bad that Governor Schwarzenegger, over my objections, did in fact blue pencil the AB 2034 money. But by then, the success of 34 and 2034 and the data was the catalyst that allowed us to take the case to the people for the passage of Proposition 63 in 2004. Now Proposition 63 itself in my view, has been a great, great success. It has all the elements of the AB 34-2034 approach and much more. It's recovery focused. It's focused on cultural competency. It is focused on the client and client-centered services. And 25% of the money every year must be spent on prevention, early intervention, and innovation. And in fact, the dollars for our behavioral health centers here comes straight from uh, those source of funds. But here's the problem 10 years into the passage of the Mental Health Services Act. I know what's happened because I wrote it and I suppose I have a stake in its success. But if you asked the 120 members of the legislature or the governor to describe to you five things that Proposition 63 has achieved over the course of 10 years, they would not be able to give you an answer. If you asked all of the major editorial writers or healthcare writers, and of course the, the world of journalism is shrinking itself, but if, if you ask those who are still involved in health-related issues to describe the same, I would bet that they would not be able to tell you. I have had, especially during my years as leader and during the heart of the recession when everyone was desperately looking for money, I had to defend an act that should need no defending. This is not bragging, it's just a fact. If I had not been at the negotiating table in 2009 and 2010, Prop 63 might have been wiped out. Because I had the ability simply to say no. I would have been challenged in court, and Lord knows we'd probably still be in court. But the fact of the matter is, I had to spend years defending an act, continue to, that should need no defending. That's why my institute's first, first job was to cull the data from the counties who now have gotten the message and to look at this whatever it takes approach in the same way we did for AB 34 and 2034. And what we found is that in 2011-12, which is the only year they have and they're working hard to get more data, but at least it's recent data, 35,000 people, that's a lot of people, benefited from the whatever it takes approach under the Mental Health Services Act, just like the prior bills. 
And of those 35,000 people cumulatively, we saw largely the same dramatically positive results that we saw years earlier when we did the pilot projects. 35,000 people reduced jail time, reduced hospitalization, reduced emergency uh, and psychiatric care and treatment, increased employment, more independent living. The data was actually more extensive than what we did under the pilot programs themselves. And so, as I said, that is not the end of the reporting. That must only be the beginning. Now, I don't expect the Behavioral Health Center here to take the lead when it comes to the Mental Health Services Act evaluation because that's something that the counties and the state of California need to do, and I will provide through my various uh, with my various hats, as much prodding as I can to get that done. But I think it's a good example of why the formation of this center is so important. Because the potential for the Behavioral Health Center to play a lead role in using research and data to change public opinion and, and to innovate when it comes to the next generation of mental health care in this state and in this country, I think is profound. What is the next generation of prevention and early intervention innovations for people? We know, we know about Dr. Carter's prodromal research. Is that what it's called? The EDAP clinic. We, we know that medicine changes, and we certainly know that the biology and the chemistry of kids change, especially as they go through adolescence. What is it that we're going to work on, and you're going to work on over the course of the next decades to provide better outcomes for kids who get diagnosed early and get the help that they need? What models might you develop that will ensure that pediatricians and family physicians understand these issues sufficiently that people don't slip through their initial physical evaluation and miss something that might lead to better outcomes for both kids and adults. What can you do as practitioners and as researchers to help better align, as I said earlier, the best practices on the treatment side with payment reform in such a way that the individual doesn't know or frankly care whether they're a recipient of Mental Health Services Act funding, ACA insurance funding, or some other source of funding. They call it no wrong door. We have a system that is anything but no wrong door at this point. That's what I hear more than anything else from the common person out there, the average person. Where do I go to get help? 
What do I do? How do I pay for it? How do I navigate this system? You have the opportunity and we have the opportunity together to begin cultivating doctors, scientists, medical students as frontline advocates for improving this system. I'm proud to work with UC Davis and I've also had some conversations with the McGeorge Law School people who want me to do something similar at McGeorge lecture a little bit and and work on uh, the clinical on the clinical law side when it comes to these issues and imagine if throughout this state we created a cohort of medical nursing students social work students and law students and created a bit of an army of advocates who with the right kind of help an organizational structure could storm the halls of the Capitol and demanded different and better budgets and more responsive policies when it comes to improving this system. Yesterday, I was perusing uh, the New York Times. Hope you read the, you guys read uh, the New York Times because it's always a treat, especially on Sunday. And there was a fascinating article in the opinion section of the newspaper entitled, Just a second here. When Moneyball Meets Medicine, by a guy named Jeremy N. Smith. And he asked the question essentially whether data analytics made famous for baseball in the, the book and the great movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt, great movie, could also be applied to evaluating, comparing, and contrasting the life impacts of various life-threatening illnesses, conditions, and, and the risk to life from non-medical situations. And I'll explain in a moment. And he wrote about what they call in the field, and maybe you know this, but I didn't, what they call dallies, which is the, the new way they, uh, that some in Great Britain are trying to evaluate the impact of, on, on life uh, of various conditions. And this is the way it's described. He says, dallies are calculated first by measuring how many potential years of life are lost when a person dies. Dallies then incorporate the total years lived with disability, a measure based on international estimates of how much each non-fatal condition detracts from perfect health. Being paralyzed, for example, is considered close to half as healthy as perfect health. So every year you live with paralysis, you have lost the equivalent of a half a year of healthy life. Now in the United Kingdom in 2012, the article reports that lung cancer killed 200,000 more people per year than road injuries. And yet, the DALI analytic concluded that road conditions are two and a half times worse for humanity than lung cancer. They concluded that most victims of lung cancer tragedy 
of course, that it is are in their 60s, their 70s, and their 80s, where most people involved in road injuries are in their 20s or 30s. Now, I don't know if this is right or wrong or how much subjectivity went into this sort of analytic, but it made me think. Imagine if this methodology encompassed not just the impact on individual lives, but on related costs of failing to treat the illness or the condition in the first place. This is mental health. As I said earlier, it is pervasive, not just in the lives and the families it directly affects, but in tremendously overstressed public health systems and other public systems that we have a hard time maintaining. Criminal justice. I participated in quite a row with the governor back in 2013 over how to handle the prison overcrowding problem. We've been under federal court order for the last decade and a half because our prisons are overcrowded. And you look at the numbers and the statistics, at least the United States Criminal Justice Survey from 2006, 80% of inmates in, in this country's correctional facilities have some form of genuine mental illness. Look at housing and homelessness and the distress on communities and the impact on our healthcare systems. You look at what's going on in emergency rooms here at UC Davis and throughout our state, the emergency room now being the, the new treatment modality for people in crisis who are 5150s. You look at all these externalities that I'm not comparing any of this to lung cancer, or people being killed on the road, but if we developed a, a series of analytics that allowed us to credibly go to policymakers and actually say, this is busting your budget, and here are ways to here are ways to do this differently in a way that are more that is more humane and more cost effective, we could change this part of the world. I guess the question for me is, as we think about advocacy and research and clinical practices, can we understand each other's worlds well enough to internalize that your work is limited without advocacy and action? And that our work in politics, with so many competing agendas, with so many worthy competing agendas, can only succeed if you help us fuel everything we do on the advocacy and organizing side with outcomes, with results, and with credible data. I really think there is a potential here for a mental health movement in this state and in this country. I believe it because when there's this much unnecessary suffering around us and so much potential on the medical side, on the, uh, on the, the social side, 
an increased understanding that recovery is possible, it will be impossible if we do our jobs for those in charge to say no to more when we know what works. But movements don't just happen. They happen when a dedicated group of people decide that there's no time uh, but now. Dr. King, you know, said in his famous speech, or his famous letter from the Birmingham jail, that time itself is neutral. People said, wait, it'll happen. It'll wait. Civil rights will happen. And he said, well, time is, itself is neutral. It can be used to set you back, or it can be used to move you forward, but what are you going to do to move forward? I think we're at the beginning, or maybe not at the beginning, maybe we're in the middle of something very important here. And I hope that our work together uh, helps contribute an awful lot to a day when it's no longer frustrating for a family member to get help for their loved one, where it's no longer the reality that we just accept that the homeless veteran with untreated psychiatric problems is gonna, gonna remain on the street. When it's no longer the reality that people who have either family history or, or, or behaviors that show that, geez, they should get help sooner, uh, don't fail because they didn't get the help that they, that they needed along the way. I thank you for your time today and look forward to our dialogue. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.